Welcome back to Invisible Hate. I'm Asad Butt. And I'm Sadia Khan. And today we're going back to 1913 in Atlanta. It's Saturday, April 26th at about noon. Mary Fagan is a 13-year-old working at the National Pencil Company. She goes to collect her pay from the factory superintendent, a 29-year-old named Leo Frank, before she goes to attend the city's Confederate Memorial Day Parade. Around 3.30 the next morning, the night watchmen discover Fagan's dead body in the factory basement. She's been beaten, strangled, and possibly sexually assaulted. Despite evidence to the contrary, the murder is pinned on Leo Frank, the superintendent of the factory. The case centers around class, race, and ethnicity, with the star witness an African-American laborer and the defendant his Jewish boss. In what will become one of the trials and media circuses of the century, Frank is convicted and sentenced to death. One day before his scheduled execution, the governor of Georgia commutes his sentence to life in prison. But an angry lynch mob of prominent people from Georgia ascends upon the prison and kidnaps Frank, 150 miles away in an oak grove in the hometown of the murdered girl. Frank is hung, his body desecrated and ridiculed. This is Invisible Hate. Welcome back to Invisible Hate, a weekly true crime podcast in which Sadia and I attempt to uncover the ugly truth behind various hate crimes, both recent and historical. That's right, Asad. Many of the cases that we discuss involve crimes committed against minority groups. Our goal is to determine through a discussion of the nuances and complexities of these unfortunate situations whether or not these transgressions can be considered hate crimes. As will soon become clear, today's case appears to fit many of the criteria for a hate crime. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. For now, let's start simple with the details of the case. But before we do that, Asid, how's your week going? Oh, yes, Avia. My week has been going great. We are in deep post-production for our movie, Ramadan America, which we're hoping will come out in the next couple weeks. So really excited to see that and for our listeners to watch it as well. Honestly, Sadia, the best thing that has happened to me in the last couple of weeks is that we got Isha into daycare. <laughs> oh my gosh, Isha is in the daycare Isha now. is in daycare, which is both heartbreaking and great, at least for me being able to complete work, you know, like, but I hate being away from her for, you know, six, seven, eight hours a day. And she's at the point right now also where she still hasn't gotten used to the daycare providers, the workers. And so she's crying when we drop her off and she's just emotional when we pick her up. They say she's fine, you know, when she's there, but it's still, you know, it's heartbreaking. 
Oh my gosh. Are you obsessing over what's happening there? Like, do you have hidden cameras in I wish, somewhere? right? Like, you know, I think it's been such a privilege for me to just, I record here in the basement of my house. And so when we had the nanny working, I could just go upstairs and, you know, see her anytime during the day. Or, you know, obviously when I was taking care of her during the day. Yeah. So this like black hole of like, what is she doing all day? Like she could be running around. She could be like, eating burritos we don't know and then when she comes home <laughs> you know she's just like the regular kid but yeah I, I i think i'm starting to feel what you felt when you dropped off your girls at college uh i said that's a bit different <laughs> but you'll get there you'll yeah. eventually get there just like 17 more years and 17 you'll get more. <laughs> <laughs> so sadly how was your week my week has been Fine. Talking about my girls and college, I dropped one off yesterday. It was nice to have her home for like four or five days, but now she's back and obviously I'm missing her a lot. But it was fun ride. It's a two and a half hour ride where she talked nonstop. It was as if she wasn't home. Like for the five days that she was home, she was basically locked up in her room or hanging out with her friends. But then on our way back, she talks nonstop (laughs) and we catch up on a lot of things. Do you drive slower? You drive fast. So when you're with her, do you drive slower so you have more time with her? I mean, I don't drive slower for her. I drive slower (laughs) because I have a lot of traffic violations oh. and traffic tickets oh, for Sadia, we are the, Yeah, wow, unbelievable. I mean, I'm disclosing some secrets here. Is this why you don't like the police, Sadia? <laughs> <laughs> Who knows why they give me so many traffic tickets, Asad? Who knows, right? Yeah. That's but anyways, it was nice. I still, I mean, I'm missing her. That's great. But the good thing is my younger one is coming back tomorrow for a week. Oh, that's amazing. So she has this winter break in Feb, which is crazy, but I'm I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, that'll be exciting. So I said, should we get started? Yeah, let's do it. So despite not having heard this story beforehand, it was an incredibly influential case in American history. So Sade, we have two victims here a very young white laborer named Mary Fagan and Leo Frank, her Jewish boss. First, let's set the scene. It is 1913. These events take place just after the turn of the century in the New South. The South, which is mainly rural and agricultural, is experiencing a major economic depression. Factories often paid for by people in the North are opening left and right to create jobs. There's a march towards industrialization and the urban life for many families, and Fagan's family is no exception. Atlanta is also experiencing serious race riots and has the highest arrest rate in the country around that time. Child labor laws are more or less ignored and there are no unions. So Fagan, and again, she's just 13, is a strawberry blonde girl standing four foot eight inches and weighing just over a hundred pounds, a really tiny girl. She is the daughter of poor tenant farmers who have moved from Marietta, Georgia, which at the time was quite rural, to Atlanta looking for work. And that's about all is known about her background. And so, you know, with no hope of further education, 
she has taken a job at this pencil factory inserting rubber erasers into pencils for 10 cents an hour. Wow, Asad. I mean, can you imagine doing that all day? Yeah, I mean, I I can't imagine doing anything, let alone that, for eight hours a day, you know? (laughs) And she's so young. She's only 13, right? So that also adds to this whole idea of, you know, letting your 13-year-old go away to work, to find a job. Yeah. I mean, this is certainly was the norm at that time in America, and it's certainly the norm across many places in the world, including, oh gosh, you know, yeah. on farms in America, you know, today as well. There's a lot of child labor all over the place. It's quite common in Pakistan as well, I said. So. Yeah, totally. So back to our victims, Leo Frank, unlike Fagan, is a Jewish American man of German ancestry. He was born in Texas and raised in Brooklyn, New York. He is highly educated at the Pratt Institute and at Cornell and educated as a mechanical engineer. People know him to be quiet, intelligent, high class and rational. After being an apprentice for a pencil manufacturer in Germany, he relocates to Atlanta to run his uncle's factory, which is called the National Pencil Company. He marries a local, a Georgia native named Lucille Selig who is from a wealthy Jewish family, and they're both active in the Jewish community there. And now back to that fateful day in April of 1913, Fagan picks up her paycheck from Frank, and sometime shortly after, she is brutally murdered. Frank is the last known person to see her alive. Her body is not found until the next morning when a night watchman named Newt Lee discovers it in the basement on his way to the quote-unquote Negro toilet. She's bloody and bruised with a rope around her neck. Her dress is not on right and debris underneath her fingernails. Evidently, she is so badly beaten that Lee can't immediately tell her race. He notifies Frank and the police immediately. I said, this is so heartbreaking. I can't even imagine a 13-year-old being so brutally, brutally murdered and then left there, right? right. It's like somebody doesn't even want to cover their tracks. It's like they don't care at all. Totally agreed. And what's really weird, Sadia, is that there are two strange paper notes left by the body. They are full of misspellings and barely sensical, but implicate a, quote, long, tall, black Negro. The implication was that the night watchman, Lee, that person, Newt Lee, wrote it. The notes are meant to appear as if Fagan scribbled them before dying. So now, Sadia police initially suspect and arrest Lee, but then they release him. Frank, you know, the Jewish boss, is also questioned by police and release. And just a note that Frank's housekeeper confirms he was home eating lunch during the approximate time of the murder. Finally, a black janitor at the company named Jim Conley is caught washing blood off his shirt. Conley is then arrested and he admits to writing the notes to police. You know, those notes that that were found on her body. Yet three days later, Leo Frank is arrested and charged with murder. It just doesn't make sense. What? 
I'm confused, Asit. So Conley has blood on his shirt. He admits writing the notes to police. Exactly. But then Frank is arrested. It's very confusing and we'll get into it. So Conley, the black janitor at the company, makes three improbable affidavits, each different from the last. Ultimately, he claims that Frank confessed to the murder and paid him to write the notes and help move Fagan's body. The investigation, however, is, as we mentioned, controversial and full of shoddy police work like untested blood fingerprints at the factory. Yeah, but keep in mind, this is 1913. Yeah, this is not CSI, you know, technology where where people are being able to test DNA and stuff like that. So, Sadi, rumors of witness coercion as well as racist and anti-capitalist opinions from locals start to fly. To make matters worse, media coverage is very sensational. At the time, there's a newspaper war between three independent publishers in Atlanta. The three papers are The Journal, The Constitution, and The Atlanta Georgian, all vying for the high circulation. And the New York Times even gets involved, Sadia. So really, it just becomes a really big story across the country. Overall, there is little sympathy for Frank, who is viewed at best as an entitled Jewish northerner coming to exploit child labor in the South. And at worst, he's portrayed as a Jewish man sexually assaulting a young and pure white girl. Really just like leaning into these stereotypes and these tropes that are just awful. I said this is so mind-boggling to me. And right now, at least at this point, I don't see any evidence that points in Frank's direction. So I am really confused and annoyed because it just seems so unfair. Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. Here's a clip from a PBS documentary that we found about it. Very quickly, both he and Mary Fagan became symbols for a lot of what was wrong with the New South. Mary Fagan, a symbol of young girls who had to go into the factory, who had to live in the city with all of its strange kinds of ways. And Leo Frank, a symbol of kind of an alien urban capitalism uh, too. I said, do we have any information about the trial? Yeah, quite a bit, Sadia. There isn't much circumstantial or physical evidence against Frank, to your point, and many people attest to his good character. The majority of the prosecution's case rests on the testimony of Conley, that janitor, who is heavily coached. Conley's lawyer, William Smith, is a rare pro-black rights advocate for the time and meticulously prepares Conley. Many at the time believed Conley to be the real murderer but Conley maintains the story at trial that Frank is responsible and paid him to help. Both the prosecution and defense attempt to exploit Conley's race. The defense counts on Conley being too dim-witted to hold up to cross-examination, and they count on the jury to distrust him, and they also strike all potential black jurors. Meanwhile, the prosecution assumes the jury will find Conley incapable of inventing or delivering details so convincingly if they aren't true, basically saying he can't act, so he must be telling the truth. Salia, what really struck me here is like how, again, like so many stereotypes and so many tropes of like black people, of poor people, of Southerners entering into our court system and being used in the 
prosecution and defense of this case. You're absolutely right, Asa. There are so many tropes and so many stereotypes that are at play right now. Yeah. And Sadia, the prosecution also thought that people won't believe that Conley is literate enough to write the notes found by the body. So just, you know, a lot at play. Mm. Conley, however, keeps his story straight and is an incredible witness for the state in the four-week trial. This is one of the few times in this era when testimony from an African-American is used to prosecute a white man in the South. Additionally, other young girls from the factory testify that Frank has sexually harassed them, and a brothel owner says Frank tried to reserve a room for himself and a young girl close to the murder. Oh, wow. This is new information, Asad. I mean, this is a new twist. Totally. But I just want to say that these testimonies are later disputed. And so, again, there could be some prejudice here, you know, at play. Finally, the prosecution uses anti-Semitic prejudice in their favor, bringing up irrelevant biases like misconceptions about circumcision. In fact, Sadia, a lot of spectators can be heard yelling, quote unquote, hang the Jew outside the courtroom. One juror, before being selected, utters, and I quote here, I am glad they indicted the goddamn Jew. They ought to take him out and lynch him. And if I get on that jury, I'll hang that Jew for sure, end quote. Sally, I find that sometimes when we read these quotes of people saying these horrific things, I mean, obviously, it's really hard for, for me to, to, to say these words, and I hope mm. our listeners can hear that. I said then what's really sad but not surprising to me is that it's not about the crime itself. Right. Right. Everything becomes about the identity of the alleged perpetrator. Truth and evidence and facts, yeah, don't matter. They don't matter at all. And so Sadia now, you know, uh, once the court goes to the jury, it only takes them two hours to deliberate. And I should note that it was an all-white male jury. And they find Frank guilty, and he is sentenced to death. The judge seems surprised at the verdict and is likely intimidated into giving Frank the harshest punishment. Frank is not even present for the verdict for fear he'd be killed by the crowd right there if he was acquitted. He is sent to a prison farm where he begins his appeal. And that's it, I said, no consequences for Conley? Yeah, so actually Conley is convicted as an accessory after the fact and serves a year in prison. He continues to get arrested and is in and out of jail many times after the trial. His victims are mostly women. But, you know, Sadia, he becomes an unlikely hero to many fellow African-Americans in Atlanta at the time for outsmarting the white men. Interesting. Yeah. Frank's story, though, is far from over. Let's take a quick break and then we'll discuss what ensues. Welcome back to Invisible Heat. I said, what happens after Frank is convicted and sent to prison? Yeah, so Frank and his wife maintain his innocence and believe he'll win on appeal. A lot of evidence that was brought against him in the trial is proven to be false or exculpatory, but all appeals are denied, including at the Supreme Court. 
And in fact, his lawyer is run out of Georgia. So while the trial is all the evidence, or at least most of the evidence in the trial is proven to be false, people are still mad at him. What I should note, Sadia, is that the governor of Georgia then begins to review over 10,000 pages of court documents and tours the pencil factory himself two years after the trial and one day before Frank's scheduled execution, the governor commutes his sentence to life in prison. The governor, it seems, believes in Frank's innocence, and it's a really brave decision for him to make. And it's pretty much against public sentiment, right? Yeah, and it's against the public sentiment. A huge mob of white Georgians descends upon the governor's home and effectively forces him to leave the state and just to note that the governor was previously very popular in the state. Oh my gosh, this is so bizarre, Asad. Totally. And the National Guard is called out. Here's a clip that we found on YouTube by the State Bar of Georgia. That's better than the death penalty, I would say. Well, perhaps. However, when the citizens found out about it, thousands stormed the governor's mansion and Slayton declared martial law to control the riot. And so now, Sadia, after the sentence was reduced, you know, as I mentioned, there's a lot of newspaper coverage of this. One of the media newspaper owners, a fiery white supremacist politician named Tom Watson, who owned the newspaper called The Jeffersonian, calls for violence in his newspaper. He says, quote, once there were men in Georgia, men who were afraid of nothing, save to do wrong. Oh my gosh, this is incitement of violence, Asad. And using your media publication to do that, it's wild to me. So Sadia Frank, who is still in prison, is attacked by a fellow inmate. His throat is slashed seven inches across. He's rushed to the prison hospital and a fellow inmate who happens to be a surgeon miraculously saves his life. But subsequently, a very well-organized lynch party of about 25 prominent Georgians forms. They call themselves the Knights of Mary Fagan. Mary Fagan, reminder, being the victim. On the evening of August 17, 1915, they cut the town phone lines and mess with the prison guard's vehicles. They then storm into the prison hospital and kidnap Frank. Really just wild stuff. They drive him 150 miles to the hometown of Mary Fagan, The mob then handcuffs Frank, tie a noose to him, and hang him. And Sadia, it really became an event. Thousands start to gather at the scene, which is like a circus. People take photographs under his swinging corpse, many of which are made into postcards. Pieces of his shirt are torn off and kept. And you know, Sadia, what's even crazier is that bits of the rope that hang him and leaves from the tree that he was hung by are sold as memorabilia. I said this situation is so fucked up. Just disgusting. I don't know what to say anymore, right? And I keep thinking sometimes people can act and react in ways that make us, I don't know, less human. Yeah. I don't want to use the word animal. Forget our humanity. Yeah, we forget our humanity and we act in ways that are just unfathomable. So I don't have words to describe what I'm feeling right now. 
I think the closest thing that if we want to put into current day, the January 6th attacks, you know, seeing of the of the Capitol, you know, when you see the people inside and they're overthrowing furniture, they're sitting on people's desks. I think one of them put feces or peed on on one of the Congress people's furniture. Like there is something about this, you know, they call it mob mentality, right? Where mm. like you're in this mob, you're all going in this one direction. I feel like there's always going to be people, regardless of what the mob is for, that end up doing really horrible, horrible things and feel as if they are justified in doing those horrible things because in their minds, it's for the greater good. To me, what we're talking about here in this case, it's very similar. Like it became an event. And like, mm. that's what it was like on January 6th. You saw people taking pictures and video, like they were proud that they were there. And then in hindsight, with a little bit more context and accountability, a lot of them realized that what they did was not legal, right, moral, you know, all that kind of stuff. I said, you're absolutely right. And it's also important for our listeners to understand the context, the time, because it also helps us understand what's happening currently in the U.S., right? Because as you said, we can make connections and there's a through line of what's happening right now. Now, when I came to the U.S. in early 2000s as an immigrant, I thought these things didn't happen in the U.S. These things, this mob mentality, it only happened in certain parts of the world. And what is surprising but not surprising to me is that human nature is so similar across boundaries and people are people and they will behave a certain way and in order for us not to behave a certain way we just have to look at the past and learn from it right totally agreed so this case is something that people can probably listen to and learn from and see that humans are humans and they will do things like this how do we move forward totally agreed So, Sadia, yeah, there were many, many other lynchings in the South, all tragic. There were 21 others in Georgia that year alone, and all the other victims were black. But this is the only Jewish lynching in U.S. history. Hmm. And how did people react, Asad? Yeah, so it's a mixed reaction, no surprise. The lynching is mostly criticized nationally and internationally while celebrated across Georgia. I mean, talking about the memorabilia stuff, there are branches from the lynching tree that are tossed onto Frank's grave when he's buried. That said, it really shook two communities, the Jewish community and that of Marietta. The Jewish businesses in Georgia began being boycotted and many Jews fled the state. Meanwhile, in Marietta, the lynching is just not discussed and the perpetrators' names are kept quiet for almost 80 years. And just to note that the lynch party was made up of lawyers, clergymen, and sheriffs who then become part of the grand jury that decides not to press charges against any Marietta residents that took part in the lynching. So really, no repercussions for the violence and murder. And what's really sad is that a lot of the loudest voices against Frank go on to have great success and popularity. It's just so sad. So sad. So Leo Frank's wife, six weeks after the lynching, Savia, publishes this statement, and I quote, I only pray that those who destroyed Leo's life will realize the truth before they meet their God. 
they perhaps are not entirely to blame, fed as they were on lies unspeakable, their passions aroused by designing persons, end quote. She never remarries and continues writing Frank letters after his death. The lawyer for Conley, you'll remember earlier in the case, actually begins attesting to Frank's innocence, and he continues to do so even on his deathbed. Oh, this is a 180 degree turn. Yeah. Why would he start doing that? So he had determined that the speech patterns in the notes left by Fagan's body matched Conley and his speech patterns and knew that Conley was able to write. So like you said, like a 180 degree turn. Detective William Burns also publicly proclaims that Frank was innocent and his conviction, he calls it a, quote, deliberate frame up of the police of Atlanta, which he says is a systemic problem at the time. It absolutely is. And it still is a systemic problem, right? So bias in law enforcement was prevalent even then, Asad. Yeah, that's what it seems like. So the fixed grand jury plus Frank's easy abduction from the state prison leads to the lynching later being called a, quote, state-sponsored crime. I'd never even known that something like that had happened and, you know, like that labeling even existed. The media was also blamed. Here's a clip from an author we found named Steve Oni. You know, we live in a world of influence, and it was a world of influence even then. And for the New York Times to be championing Leo Frank as the appeals are being held in Washington, D.C., uh, that was a powerful thing. And I think that extended Frank's life, but it contributed to the backlash in Georgia that ultimately curtailed Frank's life. Uh, so it was a double-edged sword. And meanwhile, we got to remember the victim, Sadia, you know, Mary Fagan. She remains a symbol of Southern womanhood and an unfortunate victim of the system. And, you know, Sadia, years later in 1982, 69 years after these events, Frank's office boy comes forward. He's a shy 14-year-old at the time of the murder. He submits a statement that he saw Conley carrying Mary's body to the factory basement, but was threatened by Conley to not say anything. His parents had encouraged him to stay silent. While this person did testify at the 1913 trial, he did not mention seeing Conley with the body. He said, Sadia, and I quote, that I wish I had done it differently. I wish I had told what I knew. So, Sadia, there is a movement to pardon Frank because, you know, he was convicted. And while the pardon is initially denied, it succeeds four years later when the state admits it failed to protect Frank while in custody, effectively preventing further appeals. The pardon does not make claims to his guilt or innocence, but virtually all maintain his innocence now except for Mary's descendants. Oh, wow. So they still think he was the one who murdered their daughter or their family member. Their relative. Yeah, for sure. That's interesting. So I said, do we think this was a hate crime? Yeah. I mean, I think we need to first identify which crime we're talking about. Right. So the murder of Mary Fagan, it doesn't seem like that was a hate crime. But I think when we talk about Leo Frank and his case, I certainly see it as something that rises to the level of being a hate crime. How about you? 
I do too. I said, look, there was anti-Semitic rhetoric within trial and media, both of which were irrelevant to the case, but obviously it impacted how people viewed Frank. There is a lot of history of race wars and prejudice in Atlanta. Jury members were probably biased against Jewish people at the time. There is very little evidence against Frank in trial, and yet he is convicted, which tells me that this was more than just a perpetrator being convicted for a murder of a young girl. And how can we forget, there were many Georgians at the time who were just angry about their economic disparity, and they probably blamed a certain ethnic identity for it, right? You know, Sadia, I think for me, this case, like there are so many issues at play, media bias, race relations, economic disparities, anti-Semitism, you name it. There's just so much going on. You're right, said There was economic disparity. There is confluence of privilege. Again, somebody coming from the North, being Jewish, being an outsider to some people. Totally. All of that probably culminated into this horrific, horrific murder. Yeah. And what's sad to me, Asad, is that the way things unfolded, we are talking about Frank's brutal murder. We've almost, not forgotten, but we are almost taking away from Mary's murder, which to me is, I guess, the trade-off that we are doing in this case. 100%. Yeah, I think that's a very great point, Sadia. So Asad, let's talk about some of the lasting effects of this case. Yeah, so Frank's lynching strikes a resurgence of the KKK in the area from the very group called, you know, the Knights of Mary Fagan that lynched him. Frank's trial and subsequent death both led to the formation of the Anti-Defamation League, the ADL, which starts in 1913 in Chicago. In the 1990s, a Tony award-winning Broadway play called Parade is made about this case. Here's a clip for it. But someone's gonna pay! Someone's gonna pay! And finally, the state of Georgia attempts to create a lynching cold case unit inspired by Frank's death and the lynchings of multiple African-Americans. But that legislation has not yet passed. Not yet passed, I said, not even in 2024. I know, I know. These things, as you can imagine, yeah. But this was an important case, I said, and I'm so glad we covered it. And we should cover more cases from early 20th century or even 19th century. Why not? No, I mean, I think to your point as well, like history repeats itself. And this was such a prominent case that I really didn't know anything about before we started researching this. And, you know, it's again, it's important to know these things and make the connections between current day events and and previous events. So absolutely. Thank you once again to all our listeners for listening to Invisible Heat. If you want to learn more, check out links in the show notes about this case. Please email us your thoughts on this story or any other story you think we should cover. You can reach us at info at invisiblehatepodcast.com. You can also tweet us or hit us up on Instagram. Just search for Invisible Hate Podcast. 
Yeah, thanks again for listening. If you like what you hear, please share it with a friend. Invisible Hate is a joint production of Rafaelion Media and Immigrantly. We'd like to thank our team, which includes Michaela Strather, Lindsay Gamble, Karoma Chakravarthy, and Emmanuel Monahan. Our music was done by Simon Hutchinson. We'll be back next week with another hate crime for us to analyze. Until then, I'm Asad Butt. And I'm Sadia Khan. 